you turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, thank the Lord for his goodness and everyone who serves in ministry. And uh, I'm enjoying the spring allergies. And uh, <clears throat> so my voice is a little rougher than normal, but I feel good in my spirit. I was thinking about what Brother Brother said, you know, when I was adding uh, turn around to Brother Sister Strauss. We're adding to some of the things that might be in your yard, like in a trespassing sign, uh, protected by Smith and Wesson, <clears throat> things that beware of dog, um, and then your church sign there. So <clears throat> you're welcome to a yard sign if it would be a welcoming, good representation of Atlanta West. How's that? Sunday, Brother Hernandez, and I will tell you that uh, we're doing a family vacation that starts on Saturday. Brother DJ Hill will be ministering next Wednesday. We're very, very excited about what God is doing in our church. We're pretty excited about getting our family together next week. 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And this is the New King James, and the King James would say the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is... There is liberty, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. I want to speak to you tonight on the subject, transforming glory, glory that transforms us, transforming glory. So I'll do a brief review. This is kind of like a first quarter review for 2019 at Atlanta West Pentecostal Church. January is all about landmarks, claiming the spiritual territory that has been deeded to us by God according to the promises of his word. We need to set our foot down on every square inch of the promises of God, every doctrinal truth, everything that belongs to the people of God. And we also need to make sure that we stay on our property, that we stay inside the landmarks, the boundaries that God set for us, that we're not guilty of trespassing into enemy territory of something that does not belong to the church. Holiness is not just a fence to keep us out of some other place. It's something that defines who we are. And the King James says we're the peculiar people of God, the set-apart people of God. Israel had boundaries, and they were to claim everything inside them and stay away from everything that was not. In February, we spent most of that month talking about foundations, that if you're going to have a strong life or church, you have to be built on a firm foundation. And for most of us, we have to dig deep. It's not conspicuous. And as you recall, the wise and the foolish men could have been next door neighbors because the wise man, according to Luke, dig deep until he struck rock and then he built there. So I hope you've continued to excavate the silt, the sand, the junk out of your life so that you can build on the bedrock of God's word and God's nature. The month of March was spent talking about the glory of God. I know I just reviewed this Sunday, but the manifested mercy, majesty, magnificence, and might of God. I felt like Sunday in our altar service, in both services, the 9 a.m., and the 11.30 a.m. that we broke into a dimension of the power of God that I have been hungry for and we have corporately been longing for. It was tremendous. And it seemed like after a while of prayer that there was like a second wave or surge or the wind of God that blew into the house spiritually. I didn't feel it literally, but I could just feel it like a lift that came in and I was so thankful for what the Lord did here on Sunday, the glory of God. But we don't believe that the glory of God is just a passing thing. It's not something that is here today and gone tomorrow, or it shouldn't be. We are in for a desire for...
for the enduring glory of God. In April, we're going to talk about the glory of the cross and that you cannot have the glory of a resurrection without the gory crucifixion of Jesus Christ. On the 14th, Lord willing, I'll be ministering. We'll receive communion. We're going to be prepared for a week of prayer and fasting, and we want to set the stage spiritually for people to come into the kingdom of God, not just on Easter Sunday, but it is a big day when a lot of unchurched people or de-churched people come back to church. That's what we want to see uh, this coming month and in the months ahead. The Bible said about the resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ and every other person that it is sown in corruption and it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. So I am praying that God would give us that kind of an April and beyond. The Sunday after Easter, we're very excited that Brother Chris Green will be back here April 28th. He'll be ministering, and our goal on April 28th is to get people to come back the Sunday after Easter Sunday for a man that God has used to see hundreds and hundreds of people receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He is a harvester. His ministry is reaching lost people, and we're very excited about what the Lord is going to do. So this is not just a quarterly theme or an emphasis. It is a relentless pursuit of the glory of God that would not just be here for a day or a month or a quarter, but it would abide at Atlanta West and on our lives. And if you desire that, would you just say amen? amen? I feel that from you. I see that in your worship. I believe God is helping us. You know, it is just true about older churches, and we're an older church now, that sometimes churches plateau, then they decline, and then eventually there's an obituary written about that church, the autopsy of a deceased church, and you look at what happened where they were not reaching for the next generation. They did not hold on to scriptural truth. They were not hungry for the power of God, and they just simply dwindled away over time. I'm committed not just to having a church, but to being the church and going after everything God has for us. I don't want to be an old, you know, crusty Christian. I want to be alive with the power of God in my life. Amen. I believe that's the way it was designed to do, that our outward man perishes, but the inward man is renewed day by day. That you can get better spiritually as you get older. You can become more dependent on God and not more self-dependent as you get older. You need to know how much you need the Lord. I'm hungry for the enduring glory of God. Now this passage... 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, it's one of those passages when you go there, you have dived off into the deep end of the pool. That's what commentators say about 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But Paul essentially, I like to try to simplify and clarify what may be complicated. Paul is comparing the faded glory of the old covenant with the enduring transforming power of the new. He uses the example of Moses on Sinai and what happened to him there and contrasts it with what we have an opportunity to discover and enjoy all of our Christian experience because of the new covenant that was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's start in 2 Corinthians 3 and 1. We're going to walk through several verses of this passage trying to mine out some insights of this great passage of Scripture. Tonight I'll be using the New King James just because of some archaic words that maybe would make it more difficult. I would have to explain more. So 2 Corinthians 3 and 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves or do we need, as some others Epistles of our commendation to you or letters of commendation from you. For you are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Paul can say that because he birthed the Corinthian church. He spent 18 months there working with Aquila and Priscilla as tent makers 
establishing these new believers. There's a Jewish contingent there, and there's a Gentile contingent in Corinth. So Paul is saying, do I need to come to you and have somebody write a letter of recommendation? Like you don't know me? And he asked him in one place, am I, am I become your enemy because I have told you the truth? You know, that's the kind of relationship he has with the Corinthian church. Now, you may have 10,000 teachers. You don't have many fathers. He had begotten them in the gospel. So he tells them, you are our epistles. Then verse 3, clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us. Written not with ink, watch these words, not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. That's a phrase you should hold on to every day. Because you will always feel inadequate of what God has asked you to do. And the reason you will feel inadequate is because you are. Because your sufficiency is not of yourself. Our sufficiency is of God. And once you learn that your sufficiency is of God, that he fills you up to full and makes the difference, then you trust him and you don't fret about what you lack. You trust God to make up the difference because he is our sufficiency, the sufficiency for every deficiency in our own ability. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, you can see that he's contrasting, as I said, the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was written with ink or written by the finger of God, graven in tables or tablets of stone. And it was externally imposed on people to live by the letter of the law. The new Paul said is written with the spirit of the living God. The old is written with ink. The new is written with the spirit. The old was written on tablets of stone. The new is written on the tables of flesh, which is the heart of men and women. The old was externally imposed. The new is internally expressed and changes us on the inside and as a result of that on the outside. The Bible teaches that holiness is of flesh and spirit. And when you read Matthew 23, you get a good understanding that if you get the inside right, the outside will get right as a result of what is taking place on the inside of you. Amen? We used to sing this song. It wasn't really, didn't really last very long. But Jesus on the inside working on the outside, oh, what a change in my life. Anybody remember that song? Yeah, it was here for just a little while. But it's a good theme. But here's what we need to know. We're, we are considered apostolic people, oneness Pentecostal. And we believe in teaching the Bible and applying it. And we're known as people who have what some would call standards, standards of righteousness. We teach that you should live and act and dress and conduct yourself in a particular manner, and we draw lines. Some would say that is legalism, but legalists look for loopholes. They look for minimums instead of relationships. But I want us to understand this, that if the imposition of guidelines, rules, and regulations could make someone a Christian, we would not have a New Testament. We would not need the Holy Ghost. The Old Testament law, the precepts of the law, the prophets, the Psalms, they are not weak in their content or concept. The Bible said that they were weak through the flesh. 
That's what Paul taught us. That the law was weak, not in its inherent perfection, but that when you try to live it without power to live it, you failed every time. The law never made a Christian. The law was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. The law taught us that we couldn't be a Christian, that we couldn't live up to God's standard, that we needed help from the Holy Ghost. That's what the law taught us. So we do believe in teaching the precepts, the principles of the Bible, and applying them. But I want to go on record here in this passage to say that if you're just trying to measure up, if you're just trying to do it in ability or trying to conform to the teachings of Atlanta West, it will never work for you. It will always be a struggle. It will always be a pain to you. That's not the way this works. It works by it being generated by the Holy Ghost inside of you because God, He doesn't lower His standard. In fact, if you read the New Testament, just read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. Jesus came to enact the law at a higher level. Think about it. He said, The old said, Don't kill. I say, Don't hate. The old said, Don't commit adultery. I say, Don't lust. That's not a lower standard. That is a higher standard. And the only way you can live by a higher standard than impose guidelines is if the Spirit of Jesus Christ is in you generating holiness out from you. After all, it is called the Holy Spirit because that's what it generates in you, a holiness of life. Catching up to my notes here. So I have a tremendous confidence in the power of the word of God. But not just dead letter. Don't ever think that the apostle Paul is, is minimizing the power of the word. He's just saying that if all you have is letter, the letter showed us at Sinai and all of the Old Testament that letter or law alone is not enough. It will never make you holy as he is holy. There must be a catalyst of the Spirit, something that quickens the Word of God in our lives, and you cannot do it by the flesh. Jesus taught us that that which is flesh is just flesh. Paul taught us, rather, that which is flesh is flesh. It just produces more flesh. Not less, but just more. And you can only produce what you are. Amen? So if you only have flesh, you only produce more flesh. Now balance is a blessed trait, and we need balance in our lives of word and spirit. Now because we are Pentecostal people, you know, oneness Pentecostal, apostolic people, I need to say this, that I've lived long enough to see people who are all about the spirit but not about the word. And if they could tap into the spirit and kind of, say a few words in other tongues, they thought that was God's seal of approval on their lives. I believe in praying in the Spirit. Paul said, I thank my God, I speak in tongues more than you all. So he must have thought it was a good thing. Jude said that you build up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. You need to pray in the Spirit. But if you're all spirit and no obedience to the word, that is not spirituality. And that leads to sensationalism and people who just live on experience alone and do not really have an anchor in their life that comes from the word of God. Now on the other side, people who are word only, they become self-righteous, judgmental, actually very carnal people who think they're spiritual people. And they look down their noses like the Pharisees of the New Testament did because other people don't measure up to their standards. So there are ditches on either side of the road. Somewhere in the middle is that highway of holiness that leads to heaven. Right? Amen. So uh, we want to be balanced in that. Everybody said amen to balance. 
one other thing I want to say about these people who uh, have a strong emphasis on the word and not the spirit. And I was kind of pondering this and reflecting on the scripture and a life example that people who are like that love debate more than they do discipleship. And I wanted to say that. They love to argue the word of God, but they don't make many disciples. They're polarizing. They're not endearing. They're right, absolutely right, dogmatically right, but they don't make many converts because nobody wants to follow them because their spirit stinks. That's not in my notes, but it was pretty good. I should write that in later. The stinks part. <laughs> Verse 7, 2 Corinthians if I say 1 Corinthians, translate for me. It's 2 Corinthians. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, remember the fire on Sinai? I mean, it was glorious, he says. So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. We'll come back to this phrase. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Now, this, this chapter, this passage, reminds me of the writing of Hebrews, where the Old and New Covenants are contrasted, and everything about the New Testament is better. That's the key word of the book of Hebrews. Everything is better in the New Covenant. And Paul kind of takes a page out of that playbook, sort of. You know, that not really, but that's what this is like to me. And there's a play on word pictures of the glory of God that was seen on the face of Moses when he returned from an encounter with God on Mount Sinai. Now, I want to refer to that. I won't have these verses on the screen, but it is due to Exodus, Exodus 34, 27. This is what happened. The Lord said to Moses, write these words according to the tenor of these words. I've made a covenant with you in the house of Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. A 40-day fast without food or water. I would say there was supernatural help for Moses in that 40-day period. Pardon me, but because he broke the tables, he got to do it again. <laughs> Anyway, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked to him. In the New Testament, that word they said it actually shot beams of light. I don't know that that's true, but let's just say what the Bible said, that his face glowed. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. That's understandable. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked to them. Afterward, the children of Israel came near, and he gave the commandments, all that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. And when he finished speaking, he put a veil on his face. Because his glory is too bright. Can't look right at Moses. Whenever he would go in to speak to the Lord, he would take the veil off. Because God wasn't turned off or afraid of his own glory. So he could go before God unveiled. But he went out before the people. That season, he would have to put the veil back on. Whenever they saw the face of Moses, the skin is... Moses' face shone and he would put on the veil. That's what happened in Exodus 34. That's what Paul is writing about. That that old covenant was so glorious and it was just letter. It was just commandments written by the finger of God or table ink on tablets of stone. And it was so glorious that it made Moses' face shine but the glory was a fading glory the holy glow that was on Moses. But Paul tells us in verse 7, 2 Corinthians 
3.7 that it wasn't permanent. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not study to look at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. What's well, very interesting, um, very excited, Brother Jury, Brother D.J. Hill, they're involved in UGST, and Brother Jury is writing his paper, his thesis, and it's about the use of Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. Kind of that's a simplification. But here's a great example of Paul using the content of the Old Testament, quoting it in the New, and applying it to our lives. So you can see I read from Exodus, and here we are in 2 Corinthians. Now, this is a very interesting passage. Because there, there is a custom or kind of a story, I will call it, I don't want to call it a myth, but a custom among the Jews that the face of Moses shone his entire life until he died. Theologians have different views on this, and they use Paul's words, the original Greek words, to both defend that tradition and to refute it. I believe, according to what I have studied, that the glory on Moses' face was a fading glory, that it wasn't there his whole life. And here's what Paul is saying. He's kind of using a little symbolism that the glory on Moses' face faded away over time in the same way that the glory of the Old Testament law faded away and gave way to the coming of Christ. So you see he's using a little, not just wordplay, but an imagery play of the faded glory on Moses' face, the fading glory of the law, and the superior glory of the New Testament, the covenant that Jesus made for us. I read one thing that was kind of interesting. You know, when Moses would go out to the people, he would put the veil on his face, and when he would go back into to the, to the tabernacle, he would take the veil off. And there are some people believe that he was like recharging the glory. Like you do with your phone at night, you know, plug it into the charger so the next day you'll have a little battery power. And there's, you know, that Moses was having to do that so he wouldn't lose credibility among the people. You know, because if his face wasn't shining, they wouldn't think he was anointed as he was at another time. I think that sounds like a pretty good myth to me. Moses wasn't worried about using the tabernacle as a charging station for glory. But I do know people who use the church as a spiritual charging station. And I know you come into the presence of God. Asaph said that. I came into the house of God. We do get strength here, right? I'm not putting that down. But you can't just depend on occasional experiences, Sunday services to charge you up to go out into the world. That's part of what I want to talk about tonight is that the glory that God has given us is not a fading glory. It is a lasting glory. It is something that you live with every day of your life. And we do believe that corporate worship and preaching and teaching and fellowship and the manifest glory of God does something for us. Amen? But we've got to have more than just a, an occasional touch of God or an experience with God. I believe that the glory of God that we have is an enduring glory, a lasting glory, and it is a transforming glory of God. You cannot live by experiences alone. Amen. By the way, Moses was that man who talked to God face to face, mouth to mouth, as a man talks with his friend. Now Paul is going to argue this a little further, verses 9 through 11. For if the ministry of condemnation, that's what he calls the law, had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. Basically, Paul is saying there was glory, but when you look at this glory, it doesn't even compare. It's so much greater. 
The contrast is stark between the glory of Sinai and the glory of Zion. The glory of the law and the glory of grace. The glory that Moses brought and the glory that Jesus Christ brought. For even, uh, by the, I already said that, for if what is passing away, so here's another reference to that fading glory. That's why I have, a, I believe, another reference why the glory was fading. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Verse 14. Amen. I'm sorry. I want, I want to just refer to something. I, I, I want to bring something in this later in this passage. I just got confused by my own notes. That's a dangerous thing. Look at verses 14 through 16. I'm coming back to a main point, but this, this is well taken and it needs to not be missed. But Paul talks to us about the future of Israel, how that for them the veil is blindness to Jesus Christ. But in the future that veil will be taken away. So now he's talking about Israel. For, but their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted. In the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Now think about this. He's talking about Jewish people that live in his day that do not have the Holy Ghost. They have not believed on Jesus Christ. They do not have the Spirit. So even, they, they, even though they live in a day when the Spirit is available, they're living below the privilege and power of the Spirit. They're sitting in synagogues or even maybe in the temple, and they're reading the Old Testament, but they don't understand it. They're veiled. Because the veil is taken away in Christ. You can't have the veil off of you to understand unless you have Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Paul sees the veil... Not as a physical face covering, but as spiritual blindness. And the veil is not on the face of Moses to protect his eyes from the, the people from him, but to protect the heart of the Jews. It's covering them. It's really a bad thing. It blinds their hearts to the identity of Jesus Christ. And as long as they live without the Spirit, they're going to be blinded. And as long as we live without the Spirit, we're not going to have illumination on the Word of God. I'm just applying this right now. What I said earlier, that this is to be lived. This life is to be lived in the power of the Spirit. Not in the ability, the energy, the heritage, your longevity as a Christian. We have to walk in the Spirit if we don't want to fulfill the lust of the flesh. But Paul said when they turn to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And it's like what happens in repentance to me. When a person really turns from their sins and they turn to Jesus Christ, then all of a sudden the veil is away and they're open to the power of God to come in their life when they genuinely repent. And Paul was just telling this, us this about the Jews. So that I wanted you to get that. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 3, he tells us that if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whom the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them. Amen. Well, I want to, uh, well, I want to go to verse 6. For it is, the God who it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God, in the, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So I, I want to stop here. And I want to talk a little bit about Easter for a minute, about evangelism, about this veil, about being able to see the Lord. And then I'm going to get back to this passage about transforming glory. Years ago, when we started talking about the three eyes of, of evangelism, we said invest in relationships, intercede in prayer, and invite that person into your life, into a Bible study, Invite them to church. 
The reason we didn't just say invest in relationships and invite to church is because there's something that has blinded that person to the gospel. That's what I just read that Paul said. You have this veil. We have their minds blinded to God so that they cannot see. So it's good to take two and give that to a person. And it's wonderful to give an Easter invitation to your friends and neighbors and enemies. But they are blinded to the gospel. They don't understand the way you live. You don't make any sense to them. To them, it's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. For them, it's get everything you can have in this life. Why in the world would you take your time to go to church? Why in the world would you return 10% of your income to the Lord in tithes? That doesn't make any sense at all. Unless you realize that God has a different kind of math. It's called blessing. So your life does not compute to them. They are blinded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's why I believe it takes the power of the Holy Ghost and that often comes through prayer for that veil to be removed, for them to open their eyes and see truth that you may be saying to them. So that's why we, we invest in relationships. That's why we intercede in prayer. That's why we invite them in. We put interceding in prayer as an important component of that. And I'll say this now. That's why I have been pushing for the presence of God and the glory of God. Because you can have church, worship, singing, preaching, altar services. But if there is not a power of God here, no one's going to be changed. No one's going to be saved. We desperately need the demonstration of the Holy Ghost. I think I just said it in passing what Paul said when I came to you. My, my preaching was not with the enticing words of man's wisdom. Although Paul was brilliant, he did not try to impress them with oratory. He said, but I came in demonstration of the spirit and power. The Bible, it means literally a showing forth, a demonstration that God would show up with mighty power so that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. That's why we need powerful church. That's why we need the glory of God. We don't just need the glory of information because that's Old Testament. We need the glory of power to bring that letter to life. Amen. 2 Corinthians 3, 17. If you're there, say amen. Now the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I've already preached this point before I read this verse. So I will just underscore it by saying we need a powerful Holy Ghost environment where the Spirit of the Lord is because that is where there is liberty. It's where chains are broken. It's where people are set free. This is why I believe in many churches when they do surveys of people who call themselves Christians, that they find out the people who call themselves Christians commit the same kinds of sins with the same frequency as people who do not call themselves Christians. Borrow some words of Paul and say, that shall not be, should not be so among you. It shouldn't be the way we live. We're not just living by a commitment to Jesus Christ. We're not just living by accepting Christ as our personal Savior, which is not the verbiage of the Bible, by the way. That's not terminology we use here. We believe that we need the Holy Ghost. It's essential to salvation, but why would you want to not have it? Why would you want to try to do this living like an Old Testament person without the power of the Spirit? 
That's the whole point of this passage. With all the glory that Sinai had, it was still letter. It was still law. It was still death. Amen. So we need liberty that comes by the power of the Holy Ghost. It is not by might. It is not by power, the Lord told Zechariah, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. So I want to read it again. If you put this verse 17 back up one more time. Now the Lord is that spirit or the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is... There is liberty. So we believe when two or three are gathered together in his name, he's there in the midst. We believe that while God is omnipresent everywhere at the same time, that he's not at, at work. He's not at work everywhere at the same time. But where the spirit of the Lord is, there is a spirit of liberty that comes into that environment. We call it a church. Amen. Now verse 18. But we all, everybody say me. It's talking about New Testament believers. That's us. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We're not like those unbelieving Jewish people of Paul's day who would not turn to the Lord, who had veils over their hearts, whose eyes were blinded, whose minds were blinded to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. When we come to church or when we're in private devotion, we don't have a veil on our heart. But we come to him with open face, with unveiled face to view like in a mirror the glory of God. Now, this is like looking in a mirror only different. Okay? Now, I know what James says. That unfor you know, the forgetful here, he looks in the, the word of God, he sees himself, he goes his way. He forgets what manner of man he was. That's not the same illustration. It's a different point. So this is like looking in a mirror except seeing something different. Paul uses a mirror, but he uses it in a different idea that when you with open face, with an unveiled face, look into the word of God, into the spirit, you don't see yourself. You see the image of Jesus Christ. You behold him with an open face, and you're changed by that. I see him forgiving. And I'm changed by that. I see him loving the unlovable when I look into the mirror of the spirit and the word. And when I see that, I'm changed by that. When I look at him in the word, the Holy Ghost convicts me of the ways I'm not like Jesus Christ. And it makes me want to be like him. Paul said that you've got to have the Holy Ghost at work in your life so that you take the veil off, so that you can see what you need to become. And he tells us that we are being transformed. I don't know how that makes you feel, but it makes me feel pretty good about my walk with God. That I'm not just standing in the same place. I am not going backwards. But the Holy Ghost and the Word of God are working in me to make me like Jesus Christ. I'm being changed. And all of this talk about the glory of God and what the glory of God does for you. It is not just a cloud. It is not just a presence. It is not just healing. But it is change. It is change in me to be like him. Amen. When I saw what God was doing on Sunday, and I don't mean specifically that I knew, but people were breaking in their spirit. They were getting in the presence of God. They were praying in the Holy Ghost. And I didn't know the specifics. That's not for me to know. But I could see God working here, and God working here, and God working here. It was Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Ghost transforming us.
That's why we need the glory of God because the glory changes us. It is a transforming glory. Why don't we thank the Lord right now? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. The glory of God in the church that Paul prayed for in Ephesians 3 is not a fading glory. It is an enduring glory. And mostly in this passage, and Paul says that in the passage, it's an enduring glory. It doesn't fade away. Well, I am so encouraged to know that it is a transforming glory. Because when you see something in the Word of God that you know you need to do, and you realize it's just too big for you, you're not able to do that. But when you get in the presence of the Lord, and you bring that, that need, that lack, that area of improvement to Him, then it is the glory of God, the Spirit of the Lord. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. It is the Spirit of the Lord who helps us do what the book of Colossians is. We kind of put off the old and put on the new. All of these New Testament passages that talk about the incremental changes that should come in our lives as we grow in the Lord. All of that has to be catalyzed by the Holy Ghost. It's only made possible by the glory of God, the Spirit of God at work in every one of us. That's why we cannot be satisfied. We can no longer be satisfied with worship services that are perfunctory, just carried out with like minimal effort or reflection. It's kind of church as usual. Amen. We need to get in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And wherever we encounter God, it doesn't have to be sitting here in the sanctuary. We need to see Him in that mirror. We need to invite Him to transform us by the glory that we see. We need sincere encounters with God. I seldom quote commentaries. I read them. This made so much sense in the context of what I'm trying to say. In Paul's words, this transformation is taking place with ever-increasing glory. It is from glory to glory. To say that being transformed into his likeness from glory means that the believer's gradual growth in obedience, pictured in verse 18, takes place in response to God's presence. When you get in the presence of God, it's kind of like Isaiah. You know, you see him as he is and you say, woe is me. To say that we are being transformed into his likeness unto glory means that the final result of becoming more and more like him is in anticipation of the final consummation of this age. And that will one day participate in His glory in all of its fullness. Our life with God begins and ends by entering into His glorious presence. Now in the Spirit, but then face to face. John wrote of this in 1 John 3 and 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us. Remember I said that the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now are you the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what, you shall, what we shall be. But we know. But we know. That when he is revealed, we shall be like him, 
For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So every Christian has become like Moses, beholding the glory of God unveiled with open face, the King James says. Seeing his divine glory in anticipation of perfect conformity to Jesus Christ in the world to come. Would you please stand? We're going to have a time of prayer before our spiritual business meeting. The worship team can come. So what of this quest for the glory of God? See, it is where the glory of God is unveiled that we are transformed. We can veil, we can veil God's presence with programs instead of God's power. We can veil God's power by the pretense of worship and not spiritual worship. Paul said we're the the circumcision, the true Jews who worship God in the spirit. Would you just open your heart right now? Let's just lift our voices to the Lord right where we're standing right now. And let's ask the Lord to transform us. Would you open your heart right now for a glimpse of the glory of God that you will let his spirit transform you, remake you into his image in Jesus' name.